Hi, I'm Richard, the founder of 10 Adventures, and this is the 10 Adventures podcast. Each week, we talk to real people about real adventures as they explore this incredible planet we all live on. Welcome back to the 10 Adventures podcast. Today, we're talking about one of the most epic bike trips in the world. Alaska to Argentina. For many, this is a dream trip, taking in the diversity of North, Central, and South America. And here to talk about the trip is Donovan Brube, who is currently taking a break after cycling from Alaska to California. Hi, Donovan. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me here. Yeah. So you're riding from Alaska to Argentina. How did you end up deciding on this specific trip? As you said in your introduction, it's a uh, popular dream. Uh, I've taken several bike tours already across smaller countries or or, um, smaller scales of the globe. And this was always the biggest, scariest, longest one. So it had been on the the radar for a long time. And I finally uh, took the leap. You said the scariest. What was scary about this trip for you? The remoteness of the further extents geographically, you know, um, there was, I biked across the U.S. first, and there were some remote areas in the Great Plains, in uh, South Dakota, and the Badlands, or in Wyoming, but there are still cities and towns in between. When I cycled, the perimeter of Ireland last year. People have been inhabiting this tiny country, this tiny island for thousands of years. You're never really far from any number of little harbor towns or villages. You know, every day I would go through one after the other and you have your choice of where you want to pitch your tent every night and you can go to a pub and have a Guinness. You're never like uh, in the greater wilderness really by comparison but this trip begins by flying 250 miles north of the arctic circle and from there it's 500 miles to the nearest town so right out the gates you start as far away as humanly possible at the end of the road and you end similarly as close to antarctica as i will get so that's what's most scary is those long, long stretches of nothingness, uh, water storage, water access, you know, uh, things like that, the logistics of the remote wilderness, but that's also part of the appeal. And are you doing this entirely on your own? Yeah. Yeah. And so how does that fit in? You know, you go up to the, you know, the, the high Arctic and you immediately have 500 miles by yourself in you know a pretty rugged environment with no supplies like is it hard doing that on your own or are you somebody that kind of enjoys the time on your own actually that might make it a little bit easier because you don't have to worry about you know somebody else and if they're liking it or not liking it if they're going too fast or too slow correct correct there's pros and cons for sure uh i do like some alone time and like you said without a riding partner i could go for 12 plus hours a day. I could ride until after 10 p.m. In Alaska in June, there was the midnight sun every day. So I would ride as long as I wanted and never have to worry, you know, is this person 
tired or do they need a rest or do they need a day off or what are they in need of? You can go at your own pace for better or for worse. Um, that does make it easier, but it can be quite isolating too, you know, for days you don't really hear any sounds other than like wind, basically the wind dominates everything all the time. So it's nice to hear someone's voice, you know, or your own voice you scream sometimes just to hear something other than wind or laughter or like uh, the sound of a pub or a coffee shop can be quite restorative in itself. Yeah. I can really imagine that. Um, you mentioned you did some other long distance bike trips. Did they prepare you for at least kind of the first half or the first third of this trip? Like, did you feel cycling in Ireland and uh, the US and France? Did that put you in a position that you were really prepared for this? Or was there still a lot of learning on this trip, even though you were quite experienced? Yeah, there's always learning. They did give me um, the earlier trips gave me a helpful perspective. You can only earn perspective. You know, no one can give you that. Every day I can remind myself as bad as this could possibly get, I've already survived much worse, you know, whether by rain or cold or snow or the elements, you know, the road, the conditions. I've already been here or worse and survived it. So it helps me to uh, not be overwhelmed by the ruggedness of the ride. Yeah. But then, you know, there are always new challenges, the bears in Alaska, the climbs, the glaciers. You should always continue learning, I suppose. So before we come into, I'm really interested in your route and talking more about this wilderness you visited. Um, how did you plan for this trip? You know, are you the type of guy that had this all nailed down or is it kind of you just knew the start and the end and you'd figure it out along the way? Right, right. Um, I like to travel with some healthy preparation, of course, but... I do put some importance on what I call negative space in the calendar. You know, to have too strict of an itinerary can be restrictive. So I like to plan for days where you don't know where you're going to sleep or you don't know where you're going to go. And depend on um, the advice from knowledgeable locals. So I remained very open to what the people that I was meeting locally could recommend to me. And in many cases, that became some of the highlights of the trip so far. Interesting. So I have general ideas of, you know, maybe there's this place that I know I want to go or this road that I want to take. You know, everyone's going to shoot for the PCH, the Highway 1 in California, of course. Uh, but there are all kinds of, like, uh, side quests, you could call them, that you stumble into along the way, as long as you um, remain open to that kind of looseness, yeah. I think that's a really nice way to travel where you have the freedom, you know, you, you're doing a big trip, having the freedom to explore and see and not be tied to an agenda or a certain date, uh, you know, why add stress to, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime trip? Mm -hmm. Right, right. It's helpful to 
have some goals, you know, if you know that in this specific town, this many miles away, you can be supply, or if you know where there's going to be water access, rivers or lakes or something, you do need some planning, of course, you can't just be blown in the wind all the time, but some balance of the two. So I'm really interested in in kind of the rough route you take to go from the Arctic down to California. Are you able to maybe just describe, we have lots of, you know, North American listeners who uh, who probably are familiar with parts of, you know, some great, great rides in the area, but like, what exactly was your route to get, to get down to California? Right, right. I guess um, to some listeners, it might be helpful to like open Google Maps now <laughs> and type, type things in so they have some point of reference, right? But um Everyone that approaches it has their own goal or dream or starting point. Some people can start in Anchorage, Alaska, or Fairbanks, Alaska, or Vancouver, BC, wherever you want to is fine. I started in Prudhoe Bay, which is basically an oil rig that's at the very top of Alaska on the Arctic Ocean. And you can get commercial flights there. It's basically people who work in the oil industry and all of the infrastructure there is to service that oil industry. So everyone else on the flight was going back to work, except for me with my long hair and my bicycle going there for this, you know, well, I can't call it a joy ride, but an adventure, right? So you land there at this airport, which is like a little green, uh, like shipping container shed almost one room, you know, because there's only one flight in and out every day, well, a couple times a week. And I rebuilt the bike there and immediately had 500 miles south on a road called the Dalton Highway, which is known as the Hall Road locally. Just semi-trucks and haul trucks carrying supplies to that oil, oil rig. So mostly all you see is like flatbed trailers, um, or, you know, those Mercedes sprinter vans for people who are trying to drive this Dalton highway. And it's very destructive gravel road, muddy mountainous insanity from Fairbanks. It's 500 miles from there to Fairbanks, which is like North central Alaska. And some people go Southeast from there towards Yukon Territory, Canada, and BC, Canada, and then south, like maybe some people go inward to Banff and Jasper National Parks, but um, I had never been to Alaska before and wanted to explore as far as I could. So I spent six weeks, a thousand miles south to Seward, Alaska, which is a southern point on the Kenai Peninsula, and then I caught a ferry 10 hours to the southwest to Kodiak Island. There's a hundred miles of roads there that um, no one bikes. It's famous for the Kodiak bears and the fishing. People go there for salmon fishing, but beautiful biking, more similar to Hawaii maybe um, on this little, can't call it a tropical island, but um lovely camping on the beach you know and always water um, cascading 
hills into the ocean. It was lovely. And then uh, north and south for several weeks all over Alaska, um, up to Toke, south to Haines, where I caught a ferry and explored um, kind of ferry hop into Glacier Bay National Park. And then I exited north to Skagway and re-entered Yukon Territory a second time. To go south across Canada, I took the Cassiar Highway, which is like a uh, scenic route that I followed out to Prince Rupert and then ferried to Vancouver Island. I thought instead of uh, the metro areas like Vancouver and Seattle and Portland, which are fine cities, I chose Vancouver Island instead and followed all these rugged logging roads out to more beaches and they call it the Sunshine Coast out there. Uh, once you re-enter the states into Washington, it's quite easy to just follow the one and the 101 and you're just on the coast for weeks and weeks and weeks. So that's how I ended up here. I'm going to follow that down to Baja, Mexico and beyond. So I find it really interesting that, you know, a lot of people are very focused on the quickest linear route when they go on a bike tour and you were just kind of meandering in Alaska. You took the ferry to go, you know, to Vancouver Island, which, you know, people are like, you know, some people are really focused on biking everything. Um, but for you, like, what was the, what were some of the highlights? You know, it sounds like Alaska was really, uh, really impactful on, for you on this trip. Yeah, there's a few quick highlights, um, in Denali National Park, which is the highest peak in North America, Mount Denali, uh, they have a park road that's 92 miles east to west. Last year, there was a landslide on this road that closed it. So to all mountain bikers or bike packers or adventure cyclists listening, I wish everyone could go there as soon as possible, because this is like a once in a lifetime opportunity. The the landslide happened at mile 43. So no park tour buses and no cars. Uh, there's no access beyond that point. Everything has to turn around unless you have a backcountry permit, which is free. So I went to the park office and got a free permit. And you pick where you're going to go, how far you can bike, where you think you'll camp so that everyone is dispersed. Once you get to mile 43, where the landslide is, you carry your bike and all of your gear down into the Toklet River, and you kind of hike, push, carry the bike through this river for five miles, and then you can rejoin the road. And then you have 50 miles of this national park to yourself. There is literally no one, no one is allowed back there. You might see a backpacker, but it's just bears, only bears <laughs> and wildlife. For 50 miles, you can bike all the way to the end. Uh, it was extremely cold and windy and challenging. And bear encounters are majestic, you know, but terrifying. So it wasn't like smooth sailing. It was still quite challenging riding, but... In this very narrow window, until they can repair this road where the landslide happened, there would otherwise be more than half a million visitors there every 
summer. Busloads of all of these tourists with cameras trying to get pictures of bears and moose, you know, nonstop traffic down this park road. Uh, and now they, are, they aren't allowed, only backpackers and bike packers. So if anyone is listening, look into that. It's a very short window that's going to close and then, you know, the, the, the traffic will resume domination of the road once again, <laughs> you know, but um, that was awesome. Also, the person who told me about that landslide also suggested that when I got to Seward, Alaska, I find a boat out to the Kenai Fjords National Park, which is like a uh, an ice field, a glacier. There isn't really access to it except by boats. So I found a little boat, went eight hours out into these fjords where you can see the glacier calving into the ocean. Maybe I was so in love with that day because it was a day off of the bike. You know, I just left the bike at someone's house and rode around on a little boat. It was like a joyride vacation day, right? Uh, still freezing, cold, pouring rain out there. I had all of my layers on and all of my you know, head-to-toe rain gear on, so it wasn't like that kind of vacation day. But um, nice to just be off the saddle for one day at least. So that national park, too, was amazing. Find a little boat ride out there. And finally, um, Big Sur, California, is my favorite place so far on the planet, I think. And I biked there once before, but to ride that area again, it's not necessarily like a town. It's more of a geographic region of California that's still quite like rugged. I love it there. There's a landslide there too, which was similarly easy to cross, although uh, not permitted the way the National Park one was. So look into that. Um, Plenty of highlights. Uh, you know, it just sounds incredible just, you know, seeing these places that people, you know, do, don't know about or, you know, only dream of. Um, but you mentioned uh, in the Kenai Fjords having a day off and I'm always interested. What was your schedule? Did you have like a regular weekly schedule or did you kind of just take days off when you needed it? Or did you just go nonstop and, and didn't let yourself rest? I take days off when it's somewhere when you when you get somewhere nice too you know maybe you finally make it to a town after a week or two and they have like a coffee shop or a grocery store maybe i'll take a day off in alaska for many parts i couldn't take a day off because it was too cold like in the first week it was still below freezing all day and night so if i found like a beautiful glacial ice river you know you see this like flowing iceberg river with beautiful snow-capped mountains and everything's like pink and purple and i'd say wow it's three in the afternoon i've been biking for six hours eight hours who knows and i'm gonna have a little picnic and stop and make a sandwich here and eat an apple or something. But by the time I could make a sandwich in that five minutes, my hands would go numb, you know? So you couldn't like stay and enjoy, uh, or you're constantly looking over your shoulder for bears. Um, 
or in other areas when it was warmer than the mosquito, like when you, you couldn't stop long enough, really, you had, you just like had to stay in motion. So I would ride maybe a hundred miles a day because you have to maybe till 10 PM until you are ready to like pitch your tent and get in your sleeping bag. But there wasn't really room to um, stop oftentimes. Um, sometimes you know that you have a place to stay, so you only bike 40 miles, 60 miles or something. But um, for the most part, I would do like maybe I average 85 miles a day. I would shoot for 100 and then just stop at the end at sunset i would start looking for some beach to camp on maybe a church to sleep in or behind or something you know around sunset i would start looking for a place unless i you know had it scheduled ahead of time like a, a town to sleep in I, I didn't stay in any hotels but maybe i would stay with people in towns what is the you know is there a big uh uh bike touring culture like did you meet a lot of others doing similar journeys or was it is there just so much space that you know you weren't able to connect with others there is a huge culture and community behind it um i utilize an app called warm showers and it's like couch surfing but for touring cyclists so uh, as a user you know my profile would say my name is donovan i have cycled these countries or whatever and um, and you list your amenities. I live in this town and I have a spare bedroom that you can sleep in, or I have like a backyard you can camp in. And there's hundreds of thousands of people all over the world on this website. Naturally more, more readily available in like metro areas, you know, in San Francisco, for instance, than Northern Alaska. Those people are like-minded, you know, they are on this app because they are cycle tourers too. Or maybe their their son or daughter biked across Africa and they wanted to return the favor. So you meet some pretty amazing people who have good recommendations. And that was a vital resource. I didn't come across many cycle tours in person. More common on the California coast once I made it to the one. Or maybe once I got to Washington and hit the 101, then you start to see them only ran into a few other travelers in person in that several month span. Uh, and there are, uh, I'm in a few WhatsApp groups that are just a collection of people doing this. So there's an Alaska to Argentina group chat that someone added me to. There's 200 people on there right now who are doing it and everyone's sharing their information uh i can go on and say hey i'm uh entering this part of mexico if you have any recommendations for food or beaches or where you stopped you know um all of these people will immediately oh i had the best ceviche here in this little town and this and that other people are just um you know i'm entering nicaragua and here is how i snuck my drone across the border so that the military <laughs> didn't confiscate it and people sharing gap. Here's a Google document I made on how I crossed the Darien Gap by boat. Um, all kinds of awesome information. And then there's a Central American group chat that I just got added to. 
And I said, you know, entering this part of the world, and immediately two people from uh, Guatemala invited me to stay with them. So that's been really cool too, to be a part of this little like community. Some of them I've crossed paths with on this bike trip. And we recognized each other's names from the, from the WhatsApp group chat, you know, um, but the, all those people are doing it all the time. You know, this isn't like, I'm not the first or the thousandth person to attempt Alaska to Argentina. So there's lots of resources out there and lots of people doing it all the time as we speak, you know? So you're going to embark on the next stage of your trip. And you mentioned you're going to start cycling down uh, Baja. Do you have an idea, you know, where you're going to go or what routes you're going to take as you go through Central America? From where I am currently, it's about a thousand miles to La Paz. You could go inland of Mexico, but it's, I thought that La Paz might be nicer being a peninsula with lots of little, uh, like, bohemian beach towns. More water not drinking water necessarily it's still desertous but more uh more beach perhaps i don't know i've been to baja before and loved it so i just thought it would be nice and uh then you ferry from a little town called la paz back to mainland mexico and continue south from there i look forward to uh old cities there exploring um Oaxaca. I look for. I love mezcal, so I'm looking forward to uh, touring every uh, mezcaleria that I can find. And um, it is still Highway One, oftentimes in many of these other countries too. You know, so Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, just following the Pacific coast. There, there are a few ways you can get around the Darien Gap from Panama to Colombia. The fastest, cheapest way is by plane, just getting up another flight into Bogota, maybe, or Barranquilla. But some people go by boat. One guy in the group chat last week rented a kayak, or maybe bought, I guess <laughs> you'd have to buy a kayak, and disassembled his bike into it and was paddling for a week. Oh, wow. To Colombia. Uh, people do cross the Darien Gap by foot, you know, thousands of uh, migrants are hiking it every day, but you probably don't want to push your bike through it. It's like mm, undeveloped jungle, you know? So uh, I hope to take a boat if I can find one or orchestrate that, but it's cheapest and fastest to, to fly. I just don't want to break the bike down into a box and risk, you know, losing it in the airplane or uh, getting damaged. It's very stressful, right? So. We'll see. I love the idea of, of kayaking across there. That seems like a real uh, epic way to uh, to bike. I've never I've never heard of that, you know. And so I'm kind of like, that seems really, uh, really, really incredible that some somebody just say, yeah, that's that's the solution for me. And then to have their bike on the kayak as well, like I just I just imagine looking out and seeing see like, does that guy have a bike on his kayak? Right. It probably feels nice you just sit down and use your arms every day instead of pedaling right but i did meet uh in fairbanks i met this adventurous fella who um he cycled a few hundred miles to the yukon river with his um what do you call those inflatable like pack raft i think yeah yeah pack rafts 
he bungeed that to his bike and rode a couple hundred miles and then broke the bike down and inflated the, the pack raft and put his and paddled for a couple of days down the Yukon River and then put out and deflated the raft and rebuilt his bike and then biked home. I said, wow, you're a real adventure cyclist, you know. And other people I met in Alaska too, they paddled from Bellingham, Washington for two months up to Skagway, Alaska, just all day out there in the water. And then they'd camp on some shore that they could paddle onto. And then it sounded the same, I think, you know, just as cycling is or long distance hiking, it sounded like, oh, right. That's just kind of another medium for the same idea, you know? Yeah. And actually that leads to my, my next question for you. What is it about these long journeys and being your bike that, that keeps you coming back? Well, I try not to put um, too much pressure on like a purpose, you know? It's easy nowadays to get caught up in like hustle culture that everything has to be some investment towards a greater goal or idea. That's good too and helpful, but it's also okay to do something if you like it so i do love cycling and i love the outdoors and it has been my favorite mode of travel in my life you know i can find some cheap flight to i found a 500 dollars flight to france round trip to paris i said wow this must be an accident why is it 500 dollars and took a bus from the airport to a subway station and took the metro to a bike shop and rented a bike for $150 and then bang, bike to a grocery store and then out of Paris and spent weeks cycling and then guerrilla camping in some behind some stad, you know, soccer stadium or on a river or somewhere. It's cheap. As opposed to, um, you know, like a rental car and hotels and everything and gasoline. and uh, It's fast enough to really pack the miles on and see these places. You can see entire countries or continents, uh, but it's also slow enough to experience where you are in a more authentic way than just being on an interstate highway all day driving. Um, so it's hard too, but... It's my favorite way to travel, my favorite way to see the world. Alaska to Argentina was the furthest that I could go in any direction. So here we are. You've kind of like outside of this, you know, these rides, you've lived an interesting life as a musician, an educator, a traveler. And like, what's your approach to living a fulfilled life? Wow, this is a heavy question. Well, fulfillment can be quite fluid. So I don't know that I still have the answer to that. I'm just one person trying to do something that they enjoy, right? So I suppose it's trying to remember that the condition of living is supposed to be joy. It is supposed to be joyous and that sounds like a nice idea you know but stresses and work and troubles and problems and breakdowns still get in the way of that but um trying 
to remember that this is the condition of life, is feeling joyous. And that helps me when I'm setting off on these bike rides. You know, you're not going to war. You're going for a bike ride. So even though it seems scary, it is still something that you are trying to enjoy. I love that that statement of joy. I always kind of feel, um, you know, my little motto is do more of what brings joy. And there's lots of things, you know, we realize in our life, we end up doing lots of stuff that really sucks. And it's, uh, I talk to a lot of people, they get stuck in a job or a life or whatever, a city that, that they hate. And it's as simple as find what brings you joy and then do more of that within reason, you know, don't break laws doing that. But, um, for so many people, you know, being outdoors, having the freedom, uh, removing, you know, all the distractions of modern life, it just, it just brings joy. Um, it just feels right. And, and I can't explain why it feels right, but, uh, what I sense from you is it's just, this is, you know, for you a way to like, it just makes you feel good and it feels natural. Um, that, that's what I hear, you know, from, from your statement, which I think is really inspiring. Yeah, yeah, I did. You do have to, um, you know, it sounds very romantic or uh, idealistic to just, you know, pursue that joy in your life. There are still realities of like jobs and families or children or mortgages or what have you, uh, finances, the biggest one perhaps, maybe. Uh, so, mm, yeah, not everyone is maybe able to pursue it in that way, but maybe can try to find which ways you can pursue it. You know, I worked a very normal hourly job for almost a decade before this trip. And it wasn't so high paying, but I had some PTO, some vacation time every year. So I would reserve the same block in the calendar end of August, beginning of September for bike rides. So that's, I would have that window allocated and I would flight search for wherever the cheapest place in the world I could fly to and rent a bike for a hundred dollars or whatever. And that was like how I got my fix. I could look forward to that every year. That was my pursuit, right? This year it's a $500 flight to Paris. Maybe it's a $600 fly to Iceland, um, wherever you can go in whatever means for however much time that became like the goal until I could work up or save up to this more um, larger one that I had been planning for, right? So within our means, it has to be realistically within our means, but to try to pursue the joy of life, yes. Uh, you know, Donovan, I, I think that's just a great way to end this. I want to thank you for coming on and sharing, you know, your journey and what you're on and also kind of sharing your approach to, you know, finding, finding joy. And uh, I think that's really important for people who are stuck, who are maybe, you know, waiting to take that first, that first bike tour, that first uh, trekking tour to kind of step out and do something that maybe they haven't done before. Um, and it doesn't have to be, you know, Alaska to Argentina. It can be like you did for 10 years, you know, take three weeks and find a way to explore the world. So uh, thanks for sharing, you know, your story and your experience so far. Uh, I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Tailwinds to you. Excellent. 
and with that, uh, thanks for everyone for listening to this episode of the 10 Adventures podcast. We'll be back next week to explore the world and hear about more epic adventures. Listen to other episodes of the 10 Adventures podcast on Amazon Music at amazon.com slash 10 adventures.